Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I'll be your host for this episode. This is part two of a two-part series on the infamous Australian bush ranger and outlaw named Ned Kelly. If you haven't listened to part one I highly recommend you listen to episode 100 before you listen to this episode. In that episode we covered the history of the Kelly family, their hardships, early brushes with law enforcement, and the attempted arrests that forever changed the Kellys. In this episode, we will cover the crimes that made Ned Kelly famous, as well as the legacy his gang left behind. But before we get to that, let's cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. If you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In part one of the series, episode 100 of True Blue Crime, we discuss the history of the Kelly family. Ned's father, Red Kelly, was an Irish convict sent to Australia in the 1800s for stealing two pigs. He moved to a farm and married the farmer's daughter, Ellie, and together they had eight children before he was arrested for a petty crime and died shortly after from illness. Ned was left to be the man of the house after learning to be a bush ranger slash outlaw from a family friend he had several low-level run-ins with the police until his family was investigated for a major horse larceny operation in 1877. After the investigation resulted in arrest warrants for Ned and his brother Dan and several other members of the gang, a family friend and constable named Constable Fitzpatrick attempted to arrest the brothers at the family house. While there are varying accounts of how the arrest went sideways, the end result was Constable Fitzpatrick being shot in the wrist and leaving the house empty-handed. He returned to a local hotel and got word to his supervisor of the assault on him and the escape of the Kelly brothers. Ned's mother and two family friends were tried for the attack on Fitzpatrick, and his mother was sentenced to three years hard labor while she had a newborn child to care for. Police felt the backlash from the public and moved to arrest Ned, Dan, and the other members of the gang. The Kelly gang had retreated into the bush and were subsiding on wild game and made money by sluicing gold and selling moonshine whiskey. Local sympathizers traded with the gang and kept them well stocked with provisions. But word of their location made it to police and four constables were sent to the area to locate the fugitive gang. On October 25, 1878, the four officers arrived in the area the gang was hiding out and set up camp with plans to patrol the area the next day. They were unaware that they had set up their camp just two kilometers from the gang's hideout and Ned saw the search party's tracks during that first day. The gang made plans to ambush the officers the next day and try and disarm them and buy themselves time to escape. But by the time the gang arrived at the law enforcement campsite, two of the officers had left and were out searching for the Kellys. This left Constables Thomas McIntyre and Thomas Lonigan at the camp. Constable Lonigan was the same officer from Part 1 who had grabbed Ned's testicles during a fight one year prior. The gang of four men held guns on the officers and ordered them to surrender. Constable McIntyre was said to be unarmed and complied, 
but Constable Lonigan motioned as if he was going to draw his revolver while he ran towards a nearby tree. According to McIntyre, who would survive this ambush, Ned shot Lonigan and killed him in one shot as the officer ran for cover. Ned would later say Lonigan made it to the tree and Ned shot him when he came out from cover to take a shot at Ned. McIntyre didn't move and allowed the gang to arm themselves with Lonigan's sidearm and a shotgun. They then made McIntyre sit in the camp and await the return of his colleagues. When Sergeant Kennedy and Constable Scanlon returned to the camp, McIntyre walked towards them to warn them, but before he could say anything, the Kelly gang ambushed the two officers. Sergeant Kennedy tried to remove a gun from his horse tackle and was shot at by the gang, but they missed. Constable Scanlon dismounted and tried to draw a long gun from his tackle, but was shot and killed by the gang. McIntyre tried to convince Sergeant Kennedy to surrender, but the supervisor ran off into the bush with the gang tailing him. He was able to draw his sidearm and shoot at the pursuing men but missed and was cut down by two shots from the gang and then was executed. Constable McIntyre used the pursuit as an opportunity to hop onto a horse and was able to escape the deadly scene. He reported the ambush to a nearby police station and a large force of officers returned to the scene but the gang was long gone. The men had looted the deceased law enforcement officers and fled the area. The area where the ambush took place was called Stringy Bark Creek and the incident was referred to as the Stringy Bark Creek Police Murders. The details of the shootout were documented in a report filed by Constable McIntyre and also later in letters written by Ned Kelly. The documentation has various inconsistencies and historians are hesitant to believe either part of the versions of the story. The main discrepancy is Ned stating that the police search party was so heavily armed that he believed they had orders to shoot the gang members on sight and kill them without giving them a chance to surrender. Ned felt it was a kill or be killed situation. Constable McIntyre stated the men were armed for a trip into the bush and were under orders to arrest, not kill the Kelly gang, and the gang did not give his partners enough time to surrender before they were killed. And this is going to be a pretty big discrepancy. Ned Kelly, his gang, and the sympathizers, they they are clearly anti-police, and they are going to see this situation as the these police officers were sent off to hunt down the Kelly gang. There wasn't going to be a chance to surrender, there wasn't going to be a opportunity, and, and when I look at it, I, I definitely can see both sides of it. I can see Ned Kelly's point of view. For one, they only sent four officers, and the gang is known to have four people. So if you're going to arrest four well-known fugitive outlaws, it's going to be difficult to do with just four guys. I understand that they're armed, but even after you somehow maybe get the drop on the Kelly gang, you're also supposed to transport four prisoners with four people, and that's under the assumption that none of your officers are hurt or killed or you know incapacitated in such a way that they can't do their job anymore. So this four-man element that was sent off to find the Kelly gang, to me that seems more along the lines of a hunting party than a, a capture and bring-in party. If, if they had brought eight guys or ten guys and the plan was to surround the gang, make sure they understood that if they tried to fight back they'd be killed, but give them a chance to surrender, and then you've got multiple guards per guy. Just in case a couple of your guys get hurt, you still have a couple guards per guy. I, again, I can see that making more sense as a, a capture 
style party, whereas it was said that these guys were armed with long guns and shotguns and sidearms. Basically, Ned Kelly saw that these guys were going to war with the Kelly gang, and that's why he would later justify the ambush and the, the killing of these police officers, saying if they hadn't done it, the gang hadn't gotten the drop on them, then it would have been the Kelly gang that would have all been been killed at Stringy Bark Creek. So, And then you've got Constable McIntyre, of course, saying, no, the Kelly gang basically just hunted officers and didn't give them a chance to surrender. But at the same time, obviously Constable McIntyre survived because he was given the chance to surrender. So even though he's saying one thing, it, just the fact that he's alive to tell the story says another. So I think this is why historians, again, just like in part one, they're finding the truth somewhere in the middle here. I do think the police were likely sent off to go kill the members of the of the Kelly gang. I think they were probably given orders at this point to do so. And But I also believe that the Kelly gang probably, especially because of that incident where Ned Kelly was grabbed in the testicles during this fight with Lonigan. He actually said after that fight that if he was ever going to kill a police officer, it would be Constable Lonigan, which of course is the guy that he runs into, and he's the the first one shot and killed during this ambush. So again, I think the the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think the Kelly gang was ready to kill these officers, especially Constable Lonigan, and the officer's actions pushed them into that very easily uh, with, without much resistance on the part of the gang. But I do think that the police officers were out there to kill the Kelly gang. So I, I think it's a, again, I think it's parts of both stories are probably true. And two days later, news of the police officer murder spread like wildfire across the continent. On October 28, 1878, the Victorian government issued a reward of $200 a head for the gang $800 if they were all arrested. Three days later, the Parliament in Victoria passed a Temporary Felons Apprehension Act that declared the Kelly gang could be shot on sight by anyone without prosecution if the gang was found to be armed or believed to be armed. So basically, this was a government-sanctioned, continent-wide manhunt giving everybody, all citizens and police officers and members of the military, the right to shoot and kill the Kelly gang if they came across them and if they were found to be armed or believed to be armed. Well, they're an outlaw bushranger gang that just killed three police officers and took their weapons. They're, they're believed to be armed. I don't think there's going to be a situation where you're going to find the, the Kelly gang without firearms at this point. Part of the act was there was also punishments that made harboring or aiding the fugitives a crime with punishment of up to 15 years of hard labor. The government of New South Wales passed a similar act in early 1879 in response to the Kelly gang. To escape the police presence in Victoria, the gang attempted to flee into New South Wales, but were turned away by the flooded Murray River. They were forced to stay in an area with heavy police presence and had several close calls as they were hidden by members of extended family, some known criminal associates, and sympathizers. And if you don't remember from part one, uh, sympathizers are basically any citizens that if the scales of choosing between the police and the Kelly gang were put before these sympathizers, they would choose the Kelly gang. So they are likely a lot of Irish 
families that were living in this Kelly country area that had an equal hatred for police. They'd likely been mistreated, arrested for for small or made-up crimes as a part of this push to try to get them out of Kelly country. So again, there's a lot of people in this area that they're not members of the gang, but they definitely will not help police and they'll often help Kelly gang. And this is giving them food, water, shelter, whatever it might be. Living on the run with no income was not ideal, so the Gang of Outlaws turned to robbery to fund their evasion. On December 8, 1878, having learned of a citywide funeral service in the town of Euroa, they developed a plan to rob the town's bank. The following day, during the funeral, they took several people hostage at a building outside of the town. They then cut the telegraph wires, and three of the gang rode into town and successfully robbed the bank of $2,260 worth of gold and jewelry, which is worth worth roughly $68,000 today. They took the bank manager and his family hostage as well, and after returning to their staging building, they now had 37 hostages. They told the hostages to stay put for three hours or there would be consequences and rode off. The hostages would later tell police the gang treated them with courtesy, but did threaten them at times. And again, the Kelly gang is riding a very fine line here. Um, the, the, the people, the citizens, your average everyday Joe is not their enemy. They, they don't want to harm them. They don't want to have any ill will towards the Kelly gang. They've got to keep this, this balance of funding their activities and staying on the run and also treating the people in such a way that they don't turn on the Kelly gang because there are going to be people that are not sympathizers. Uh, a lot of people, the upper class, the business elites, uh, even in these, some of these small towns, which would be oftentimes the bank managers, the hotel owners, uh, they're sympathetic more to the, the government themselves. So oftentimes these people would report the Kelly gang's activities to the police. And this is how the police are figuring out you know, where they were staying near Stringy Bark Creek. So there's kind of this war of intelligence going on. And it's very important for the Kelly gang to maintain this good standing with the the regular citizens, with their sympathizers. So even though they're going to take them hostage, it's said that oftentimes they would, basically by taking them hostage, they would just make them all go into a single building, which in a lot of cases like the hotel or the saloon or something like that. And they would buy them drinks and hang out with them and dance with them and play games with them and all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't your typical, what you considered now a bank hostage or a terrorist hostage type situation. It was a much more laid back, hey, just, you know, everybody cooperate, nobody's going to get hurt. And although, again, at times, if somebody, they believe somebody was stepping out of line or was going to make some type of an effort to escape, they did threaten them. They did have to show they were willing to use force, but for the most part, the, the citizens said that they were treated well. And during the evening the hostages were held in the building, Ned had another gang member dictate a letter and then duplicate it. The letter detailed Ned's observance of widespread police corruption and his belief that he was acting in self-defense during the Stringy Bark Creek murders. Ned thought a member of Parliament named Donald Cameron was sympathetic to his cause and would read the letter to Parliament and enact some change, but unfortunately he was wrong. The duplicate of the letter was sent to a police superintendent. 
While the letters did not get the response he had hoped for, some excerpts did end up in local newspapers, and the support for the Kelly gang continued to grow. Local police were upset when the newspapers reported how well organized and efficient the robbery was in comparison to what seemed to be a disorganized and ineffective police response and the inability to capture the gang. In response, police used the Felons Apprehension Act to round up known associates of the Kelly gang and claim they were aiding the gang. 30 men were arrested and a judge ruled that 23 could remain in custody. After three weeks, police had no evidence the men had supported the gang and a judge released all but nine of the gang's closest friends. Those nine were held without evidence for almost three months, but released on April 22, 1879 after a judge ruled the police had failed to provide any material evidence they had supported the Kelly gang. According to some historians, the act of holding nine men for three months with no evidence of a crime further turned the public against the police and in support of the Kelly gang. Other historians contend it may have turned public against the police, but there isn't proof of outright support for the Kelly gang as a result. And this is obviously what's difficult about something that's 150 years old is there's not going to be a lot of documentation, at least about how individuals feel at this point. It's pretty clear that, especially in this area, this Kelly country area, the, the people are against the police. So any type of action, especially something as egregious as holding guys in prison for three months without any charges, without any evidence, is going to hurt the the PR for the police. But again, some historians are saying basically there, there were some people that just tolerated the fact that the Kelly gang existed. They weren't involved in any way. They weren't supporting the Kelly gang, but they weren't outright against it either. Uh, and so there are some historians that say, well, we've got to pump the brakes here. It's not as if because the police held these guys for three months, everybody else then jumped in support of the Kelly gang. I think the support for the Kelly gang grew as a result of just the overall police corruption and the overall treatment that the people received from the police during this time. But again, some of that's just getting into semantics at that point. And as a thank you for aiding them after the Stringy Bark Creek murders, the Kelly gang gave most of the money and gold they stole from Eurora to family, friends, and associates. By February of 1879, they were desperate for money again and decided to ride into New South Wales to commit another bank robbery. The government had sent 50 extra officers and 50 soldiers to Victoria to stand guard at banks so the gang needed an easier target. They chose the town of Drildery just into New South Wales. The gang's network of sympathizers scouted the town in advance and learned police presence was minimal. Ned and his gang stopped by the police barracks with the idea they would tell the police about a fight in a nearby hotel, but they found only two officers present and forced them to surrender at gunpoint. The gang took over the police station for two days as they established a plan for the robbery. They stole the police officers' uniforms and on February 10, 1879, the gang went into town and took everybody in the hotel hostage before entering the bank and robbing it of $2,141 worth of gold and valuables, again worth a little over $60,000 today. Ned took the time to burn most of the mortgage paperwork he found because he felt the banks were bleeding the poor people of the country dry. And this is partially why Ned Kelly gets the Australian Robin Hood nickname is it wasn't so much that he was stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. That part of the story doesn't really match up. It's more his anti-corruption, anti-authority, anti-elite st uh, status that 
that he went after as in this case he burned mortgage paperwork from the bank so it'd be harder for the banks to collect mortgage payments or foreclose on properties when when the people couldn't afford it and again this is this is just getting him more and more support more and more sympathizers to his cause the gang ordered the hostages to cut the telegraph wire from the town and as an extra precaution the gang took the two only two trained telegraph operators and locked them up with the two police officers at the police station the gang then left town with new money and a head start and so i know i mentioned they did it in aurora and they did it here as well uh, back in the 1878-1879 telegraphs are the form of communication this morse code and this is the 150 years ago 911 system so if they didn't cut these telegraph wires pretty instantaneously somebody could alert the next town over or the, the next major area of this bank robbery and th that's going to send response either by train or by horse very quickly whereas if you cut these wires that means somebody from the town has to ride to the next town that has working wire system to then send the message so they're building this delay being able to get away get get off into the bush and and escape authorities just by having the, the telephone wires cut now I'm going to assume that they had some method for doing this that was pretty effective but I'm also going to assume that that these wires must not have been that hard to repair and so as a, that's why as an extra precaution they put the the two guys that knew how to use the telegraph into the police prison along with the two officers they had taken into custody which again is now not only do they have to repair the line even if they do they've got to get these guys out of out of the prison at the same time in order to send the message and prior to leaving town, Ned had given a 56-page letter to the local accountant with a request that he deliver it to a major newspaper publication. The 7,391-word letter once again spelled out Ned's reasoning behind his attacks on police officers and discussed with the corruption of the government and treatment of the lower class in Australia. As Australia was under British rule, the letter was heavily censored and only small excerpts were to be allowed to be printed by the media. It wasn't until 1930 when the full original letter was found and the public learned of it in its entirety. So again, Australia is, it's kind of in an interesting point. Yes, it's got its own regional leaders per se. They're, they're each state, Victoria, New South Wales, they're, they elect their own parliament. These are people from, in the case of Victoria, Melbourne, usually Sydney for New South Wales. But at the same time, they don't have full autonomous freedom at this point from Britain so things like freedom of the press doesn't exist Britain and being that it's still ruling Australia they've they're going to have somewhat puppet people in charge just like they do in the police uh, ranks uh, they're going to have people that are monitoring these newspapers and making sure that whatever is printed in the newspapers doesn't cause some type of an uprising or a, a loss of control. They're, they're not looking to repeat what had happened in the colonies a hundred years later, which is roughly what's what's happening and what is going to happen. But but they're, they're very careful about what's being printed. So instead of the public hearing everything that Ned has to say, they're getting just excerpts that are likely probably making him seem more like a madman. Now, if people have obviously can now see the full letter, and to some it reads as a great political stance against tyranny and oppression, 
and others see it as the maniacal words of a murderer. And those are the same sentiments that many people have to this day when they try to assign the title of hero or villain to Ned Kelly. So again, depending on which side of the fence you're on, you're either going to read these papers and see this is a guy who's fed up with this this ruling class system, he's a guy fed up with police corruption, he's, he's upset, and other people are going to read it and say this is just a guy who's egotistical and he's an you know, evil person, he's a murderer, and he's just using politics or class warfare to justify uh, his, his murder and his thievery and that kind of stuff. And having already raised the reward for the Kelly Gang to 1000 after the Aurora robbery, both New South Wales and Victoria offered $4,000 bounties for the gang dead or alive. That meant that anyone who killed or captured the gang would receive $8,000, around $250,000 today. And to me, I know it's a pretty cheesy movie, but the it's made in the mid-90s, the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner. The It just reminds me of the part where the sheriff of nottingham is is telling his guy to keep raising the bounty and the guy tells him it's it's not going to do any good the people love him and that's kind of what's going on here i mean you can offer a quarter of a million dollars but if the kelly gang's hiding out in kelly country nobody is going to turn them in for this money because that person's likely likely going to end up dead killed as you know a snitch or whatever it might be and and people saw what the ned kelly gang was doing as a making for a potential better future for them so again they could just keep raising the bounty but nobody is going to go after the kelly gang tournament other than the police although several attempts to locate and capture the gang including using aboriginal trackers were attempted in 1879 no member of the gang was located or arrested government and bank officials upset at the lack of progress applied further pressure to the police to obtain results this led to a list of 84 potential sympathizers being blacklisted from owning property in Kelly Country, an act that again demonized the police and garnered support for the Kelly Gang. When the cost of the constant search expeditions in the bush started to raise eyebrows and a new tactic was adopted in July of 1879. Police were expected to use tips and paid police informants to learn the location and or plans of the gang and take appropriate action. And I've seen this sign before where it's done satirically, but it'll it'll say something, especially when I was in the military, I saw this on a lot of the beatings will continue until morale improves. And I think that's, you know, how the government try to approach this is we're just going to keep beating these people down. We'll arrest them. We'll prevent them from buying land, prevent them from buying the things they need to to live on the land and eventually somebody will crack and that's how we're going to get to this gang well the more that they they beat down these people the further they get from turning the people against the kelly gang and they're just further turning the people against themselves and while this also proved to be a failure one police informant named daniel kennedy notified a police officer on may 20th 1880 that the kelly gang had made bulletproof armor and were planning another raid the police supervisors found this ludicrous and fired the police informant for what they felt was false information. Another one of the police informants, a man named Aaron Sherritt, lived next to Kelly gang member Joe Byrne. He spent most of 1879 and the first half of 1880 as a double agent. He was paid by police to watch Byrne's childhood home and assisted them on searches of nearby caves that could be used as hideouts, 
but it was also believed he was supplying the Byrne family with confidential police information. So this is a guy that's walking a really thin line. My guess is he didn't have much of a choice about being a police informant. The police knew that the Kelly gang was stopping in to see members of their family. I don't think they would have been dumb enough to go back to the the Kelly residence at this point. And Ellie Kelly is in jail because of the, the issue with Constable Fitzpatrick. So there's not a real reason other than to visit his sisters that Ned and Dan would, would come back to that homestead. So that's going to be under heavy police uh, surveillance. But... The other members, the other two members of the gang, they figure they've got a, they're going to stop in at some point to see their mother, to uh, wish her a happy birthday, something along those lines. So they likely went to this guy next door and just said, hey, here's the deal. You are going to spy for us, and we're going to pay you, and you don't have a choice. So a lot of people believe that he did what he could to appease the police, but at the same time, many people believe he was secretly telling members of the Byrne family what the police were doing, when they were around, when they were going to be searching areas, and again, served as this double agent. However, the gang found out that Aaron was working with police. On June 26, 1880, Dan Kelly and Joe Byrne rode to Aaron's house and confronted him. Joe shot Aaron in the chest and neck with a shotgun, killing him. Four police officers were inside the home and they barricaded themselves in a bedroom. The two gang members tried to get the officers to surrender and then tried to burn down the house when the men refused to surrender. The house failed to catch fire and the gang members rode off into the night. Ned knew the murder of the police informant would result in a massive police response to the area to try and locate the gang. He also knew they would be sent by rail, so he came up with an insane plan that he was sure would land the gang in the history books. His plan called for the derailment of the police train from Melbourne. With the train derailed, the gang would shoot any surviving officers and then ride into a nearby town, blow up the police barracks, rob the bank, and then go back into the bush for another year. As they had before, the gang rode into the targeted town, in this case the town of Benalla. They took members of the town hostage, but again treated them with respect, and again drank, played games, and danced with them. The gang had sabotaged a section of rail on a curve and hoped the train would speed to Benalla from Melbourne and derail at the curve. The men had secured hostages inside the train station hotel and the station master's house. And they had in fact fashioned bulletproof armor from pieces of farm implements like plows and the chest plates and helmets were bulletproof but weighed around 100 pounds each. The men's arms and legs were unprotected and they had picked an angle of ambush that meant any survivors of the train crash would be shooting uphill and therefore their legs would not be exposed. So again, it's <laughs> this is very rudimentary. It's almost like armor that medieval knights would wear, except it's, it has to be thick enough to stop a bullet. So that's why just the, it was a chest piece and a single helmet, and these things weighed again roughly a hundred pounds so you're not going to be very mobile in it you're not going to be able to see very well they just had basically slits through the the metal so that they could see uh, what they could see uh, but they didn't obviously want bullets to be able to hit them in the face so they they were pretty well protected in these this armor but again not very mobile not able to manipulate things like reloading your handguns or anything like that very well but they had this entire plan, and they thought they really didn't need to be too mobile. They would just sit above where the train derails and pick off these police officers, these injured, as they come out from the train derailment. 
Their plan was proceeding well, but they mistook the local schoolmaster for a sympathizer and allowed him to leave their site to go home and sleep. The man got word to the police of the plan to derail the train, and when the train full of officers arrived in Benalla, it stopped well short of the sabotage section and roughly 40 officers disembarked. Despite hearing of the train's arrival and the lack of derailment, the Kelly gang decided to go forward with their plans and don their protective gear and engaged the large contingent of officers. It was roughly, we believe, about 40 officers to the gang's four men. A great shootout ensued and three hostages were killed by stray police gunfire and ultimately Joe Byrne, Dan Kelly, and Steve Hart were killed by gunfire. Ned Kelly was seriously wounded but managed to escape into the bush and hide out for several hours. And the train had arrived at like 2.30 in the morning, so most of this is going on at night. And the the police, they were aware, but also not aware that there was hostages in the buildings. And the the Kelly gang is basically, they're out on the front porch, front area of this this hotel that overlooks the, the train tracks down below. And so as the police are shooting up, they're shooting, when they're missing, the, their bullets are going into this house where these hostages are, and that's how three hostages end up getting killed. But the police are successful in killing three members of the Kelly gang, but Ned kind of waited after, he was seriously wounded, but he kind of waited off in the bush while it was dark, and waited until the police group got up close to the house, kind of had surrounded, and he was able to sneak behind enemy lines and open fire on them in one last ambush. He was shot 28 times with his armor stopping many of the shots, but the shots did badly bruise or cut him underneath the armor. Unprotected area of his body took several gunshots, but he survived and was taken into custody. One police supervisor and an aboriginal trooper were injured during the firefight, but no officers were killed. Ned Kelly was brought to Melbourne on October 19, 1880. He was put on trial for the murder of police constables Scanlon and Lonigan at Stringy Bark Creek. He was not put on trial for the murder of Sergeant Kennedy at the same incident. Ultimately, charges for Constable Scanlon's murder were dropped as well. And it didn't really say why this happened, why they didn't go after him for the murder of Sergeant Kennedy, or why they dropped the stuff against Constable Scanlon. Part of it might be the, the surviving off uh, Constable McIntyre. It's entirely possible that he didn't see ned kelly shoot constable scanlon and sergeant kennedy was said to have been shooting at the officers and maybe or shooting at the members of the gang so maybe the prosecutors feared that it would be looked at as a self-defense type of case as ned kelly had tried to claim it was whereas ned kelly after the incident where he got grabbed in the testicles by Constable Lonigan had told several people that he was going to kill Constable Lonigan if he had a chance. So just as today with courts, prosecutors want to go for the strongest charge. And so it's likely because this, the conviction is going to mean death no matter what, uh, maybe they just said we're not going to waste time, not going to waste the, the court's time and, and try him for these other two murders when we can't we don't have evidence that he committed them or that he did it premeditated that wouldn't be self-defense but we've got several witnesses that have said he was going to kill this constable if he was given a chance we've got a witness that in constable mcintyre that was there when the the shooting occurred can say that it was ned kelly that shot him again according to constable mcintyre ned kelly shot 
Constable Lonigan before he even had a chance to really surrender. It was as, as he was running to hide behind a tree or something, uh, at least according to to his version. So again, it might just be where that they had the strongest case for that one murder. All they need is to convict him of one murder, and he's he's going to be executed. So they decide not to try him for any of the other crimes, just the murder of Constable Lonigan. When the trial lasted two weeks, on October 28th, Ned was found guilty of the murder of Constable Lonigan and sentenced to death via hanging. The judge that sentenced him to death was the same judge that sentenced Ned's mother to three years of hard labor. When he pronounced his sentence, the judge told Ned, May God have mercy on your soul, to which Ned replied something to the effect of, I will go a little further than that and say, I will see you where I go. So it's clear that Ned thought he was going to hell and assumed because of the corruption or just he felt this judge was evil that Ned was going to see this judge in hell. An execution date was set for November 11th and during the week before the trial thousands of Kelly supporters lined the streets of Melbourne demanding clemency for Ned. A petition with 32,000 signatures was presented to the governor but it was announced the hanging would take place as scheduled. And I don't think I have it in here but I did read that the judge that that told Ned that he hoped God would have mercy on his soul, and Ned said he would see him in hell. I think he died from natural causes like 12 days after Ned Kelly was hung, so it, it is possible that, uh, that they ended up in the same place. And he was granted a visit with his mother on November 10th. Unsubstantiated reports claim she told him to die like a Kelly. And again, his mother's in prison at this point, so they basically bring her from her prison over to see her son before he's hung. On November 11th, he was marched to the gallows, and his last words are reported a dozen different ways. And this is, I think, the case in any of these folklore, folk hero type stories. Everybody has their own version of what his last words were. Some, some say it was something to the effect of, so is life. One said he was just mumbling incoherently. So again, it no one really knows what his last words were. It wasn't documented, and obviously it's not like today where it can be recorded or anything like that. And he was executed at 10 a.m., and the man known as Ned Kelly was now dead, but his legend would live on. Four months after his execution, the Victorian government conducted an investigation into police conduct during the Kelly years. They found no issues with the capture of Ned Kelly, but found widespread corruption and the need for serious reform. The report essentially vindicated Ned Kelly, but it did not exonerate him. So basically, the, the investigation found that everything that Kelly had said in his letters about this police corruption, about made-up charges against people, about likely police officers engaging in illegal activities for money, all that kind of stuff, they found that was all true, but at the same time, it's not like they said, oh, well, I guess Ned Kelly wasn't a criminal then, I guess him killing those police officers was justified or, or whatnot. They, they never, of course, exonerated him. But again, it, they did find that what he was saying was true. It's not like he made up all this stuff or exaggerated it to a level that, that it wasn't true. Uh, they did find what he was saying was true. They just, again, can't say he, he did the right thing or he handled it the right way. The reward money was given to various members of the Victorian police, and while the Aboriginal troopers were entitled to $50 each, the government kept the money because they felt the men could not be trusted with it. Obviously, I take a couple issues with this. First off, I was 
maybe I shouldn't have been shocked, but the fact that the police officers were getting the bounty money, I think it was something like the supervisor that got injured in the shootout, he got like half of the reward. So he got like $125,000 for, for quote unquote, capturing or killing the, the Kelly gang. And nowadays that would never happen. You don't see police officers getting paid rewards. It's just part of their job. That's what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to be incentivized by things like rewards or, or bonuses for bringing people in. And, and then the second part is just the sad truth. And this is actually the Aboriginal people are treated terribly by the government. And this is actually going to continue into the 20th century. And some people still argue to this day. But it just this was a glaring example of, of how e- even when you try to reward the Aboriginal people, even when the government know that they should be rewarding these people, they're still keeping the money from them because they, they feel that these people can't stood with their own money. And changes in police treatment of the people in Kelly Country brought about a significant decline in crime in the area and a relative peace settled on the land. Ellie Kelly was released from prison in 1881 and returned to a life free of harassment from police and died in 1923 at the age of 95. Ned Kelly was buried in a prison cemetery in Melbourne and his armor was donated to the state library where it can still be seen today. His body was dissected for for medical study, which was illegal at the time, but this was officially denied to have occurred in 1881, but was proven true in 2011 when saw marks were found on Ned's skull. So this caused an uproar basically back in 1881 the only autopsies or dissections that were allowed to be performed on human bodies legally was as a part of a coronial inquest and that was not what happened here the body was either taken or given to a medical school and then the students at the medical school dissected ned kelly's body they wanted to look at his brain and his organs and see what may have caused him to to be who he was or whatever whatever the reason or rationale was but word of this got out and the general public had this outcry saying you just committed a crime against a dead body of a guy who was killed for fighting against corruption the government so it was almost you know the self-fulfilling prophecy but of course the government comes out and says no 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 those are just rumors everything's made up that never happened well, then, when his skull is looked at in 2011, they find these these saw marks that were indicative of part of a dissection or an autopsy that occurred outside of a, a coronial inquest. So it's clear evidence that this did actually happen, and the government lied to the people about a corrupt act that they committed on a man who was fighting against corruption. And in 1929, the prison had been demolished and the cemetery was dug up. Bones believed to belong to Ned and other prisoners were given new burials, but his skull was given to police. Over the last almost 100 years, the skull has been studied, lost, found, stolen, and finally in 2009, it was given back to police. His body was given back to his family in 2012 and was buried on family land in 2013. So apparently they had this just rough area of the prison set aside where they would bury the bodies of the executed people especially in cases where there wasn't family to come claim the bodies and so it was yeah almost 150 years that his body was in a somewhat unmarked grave now there was i guess a headstone that said ek for edward kelly 
but there was also another prisoner that had been executed around the same time of as him that had the initials EK so they really weren't sure and then when these bones of course got moved then there was issues with were the right bones put into the right marked grave so there's quite the procedure to go through to figure out which set of bones belonged to actual Ned Kelly so they were able through DNA to link known family members of Ned Kelly to this certain set of bones to say these this is the body of Ned Kelly. The skull that was stolen, I want to say in the 1970s, uh, was returned in 2009. So they're able to, to reunite the skull with the body, bury the body on the family land, and so he can, he can rest in peace there. And Ned Kelly remains a hero to many who saw him as someone who stood up to corruption, oppression, and tyranny, and never harmed an innocent person. Others see him as a ruthless outlaw who committed acts of violence to benefit himself and or his family. What isn't debated is that the legend of Ned Kelly encapsulates what isn't debated is that the legend of Ned Kelly encapsulates the struggles that many of the poor in colonial Australia felt during the latter part of the 1800s. He may not have stolen from the rich and given to the poor, but he changed politics and policing in Australia and never backed down from a fight. The steadfast and rebellious spirit can still be found in many Aussies today, and to many of them, he remains a hero. And that is the story of Ned Kelly. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook, and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. And I do have the first episode of True Blue Crime Investigates uh, researched and written. Uh, it's <laughs> going to be an interesting one to cover but i'm covering the the disappearance of maura murray um i will be uploading that tomorrow if i can get it recorded and edited in time uh and that's going to be under true blue crime investigates podcast that should show up on all the major podcast platforms Uh, i just have some work to do to to get it uh, linked to all of those streaming services once i once i get the episode actually downloaded i will do that so uh, it's it's going to be another learning process as I get that out and as I cover uh, a case for the first time where there isn't really a, a known ending. It's going to be a lot of speculation and, and theories and whatnot. So it'll be interesting, but uh, check that out if you get a chance. Again, look for True Blue Crime Investigates. By the time this is uploaded and most people get around to listening to this, the, hopefully that podcast is also taken off. So... But that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.